yes, there's so many things, aren't there? I mean, I experience this all the time these days. With, with all the things you mentioned I've, I've been through, or at least on some level, uh, with, the, with the exception of the dating sites, just because I'm an old married man. But, uh, but with the rise of subscription-based media, I think it's just more and more common, right? Um, <clears throat> there always seems to be something that's too good to be true, right? So maybe like, hey, sign up today for half off Spotify, and, and then on the bottom, a little ton, teeny tiny fine print, it'll say, oh yeah, half off is good for like the first six months, and then we're automatically going to charge your card for a full year at a, at a regular rate, and then you're shocked because you're not told when it happens, and you look at your statement after the fact, and you're like, where did that $100 go? And you realize, oh, yes, because you didn't read the fine print, right? It was too good to be true at the time. I think it's uh, gotten so prevalent. I'm always asking myself, and maybe you're this way too, you know, what's the catch, right? You ever been there? You ever felt that where everything you look at, everything you read or see or hear even, it's like, all right, that sounds good, but what's, what's the catch? There's got to be a catch somewhere. There's got to be something going on that I'm missing. Anybody here, a professional skeptic like me, you've been through there? You've been doing that? Yeah, more and more lately in my life, I find that. I think in some ways we're culturally conditioned this way, right? Everybody and everyone and everything is, is playing an angle, right? Everything has an agenda, and it's up to us, I think, I think it seems like, to figure it out, or you're going to get played for the fool, right? In many ways, belief in our age is seen to be gullible, right? If you believe anything, it's like, oh, pfft, you're just falling for a bunch of mess, right? No matter what it is. A few years ago, to kind of highlight this point, late night uh, comedian Stephen Colbert, he had this fascinating interview with actor um, uh, Andrew Garfield. And Garfield had played these two characters in these two movies. They were at least pretty close together. You might have seen them. Um, it was two religious characters. First, it was a guy named uh, Private Doss in Hacksaw Ridge, who was a conscientious uh, cooperator. He was a medic, but he wouldn't carry a weapon. And uh, it was an amazing story, great movie, Hacksaw Ridge is great, I, you know, you watch that, that's fantastic. And then you play this other character in a movie called Silence, uh, where he was this missionary priest who was experiencing religious persecution, it was another really good film. And so Colbert's asking uh, Garfield these questions, he said, hey, as, a, as an actor, as you're getting into these roles and as you're thinking through what these people went through, you know, how, how does that affect you? Do you believe any of the things that they believed uh, in these stories, right, in these movies? And, and Garfield replies with this, he said, I believe in that as a metaphor, right? Or, or better angels, metaphorically. And also, he says, to be honest, certainty about anything is the most terrifying thing to me. And Colbert said, what do you mean certainty is terrifying? If you knew there was an afterlife, wouldn't that be comforting or, or is it terrifying? And Garfield responded, he said, but I don't know, how would I ever know, right? Even after I, I maybe even get a visitation of a sort, I would always question it. You see, he continues, he said, a life of faith is not a life of certainty. A life of faith is a life of doubt. And I think it's healthy to doubt. It's healthy to doubt oneself. And, and what I mean by certainty scares me is that certainty starts wars, is what he said. He says, certainty starts war on behalf of ideology. Certainty says, I know and you don't. And he says, that's the scariest thing to me. Andrew Garfield's remarks are met with, with just, just raucous applause from the audience because uh, I think that conversation, that dialogue, that, that really reflects who we are in this current age. That reflects our society that can we be certain? Is there certain? Should we be certain? Certainty can be terrifying, right? On the opposite side, because this is the same coin just flipped over, is there room for doubt? Maybe you've grown up in a religious atmosphere where questions were forbidden, right? Don't ask questions, just listen, right? Or maybe you've worked or grown up in an environment where you're not allowed to question. Maybe it's more like a military environment or just a very rigid house, right? And it's like, don't ask questions, just do what I tell you to do. But the prohibition of questions doesn't remove the questions, does it? It just hides them, it just buries them. You're just left thinking, 
on your own and having to sort it out on your own. So the questions don't go away. They're still there. You're just not allowed to vocalize them. So today we're going to look at another character of Easter. We started this series last week with, uh, with Peter and the life of Peter. That was a great dive into his, his life. But today we're going to look into another man's life who is known for his certainty and for his questions. And it was called Thomas, a man called Thomas. Daniel Darling writes, Thomas is one who turned from disciple to doubter to devoted. So for those of us who may be struggling with certainty and doubt, maybe you're wrestling with both. I don't know if I'm certain. In certain days I am, but other days I'm not. For those of us who are struggling with those issues when it comes to issue of faith today, in the story of Thomas, what I hope we find is a man who's struggling with these issues and finding out how he comes to his conclusions, but also finding a God who is big enough and secure enough to handle our tough questions, all right? Because he is. So let's look into the life of Thomas. There's not really a whole lot we know about him first. Let me be upfront with you. If you read through the gospel accounts, you're not going to find a whole lot on him. We don't get a lot of background info like we do on some of the other followers. But what we do know is that he was a twin. We just never meet his brother or sister twin, but we know he's a twin. Uh, We also know he was a Galilean, which means he was probably from a fishing or farming or some sort of trade. He was a hardworking man, much like Peter that we met last week. He was a very salt-of-the-earth type of guy, all right? And unlike Peter, we don't have a record of how he meets Jesus, but obviously he does because he's mentioned all the time. So he's there. We just don't know quite how they got together. But like each of them, it means that at some point he had an encounter with Christ that convinced him there was something about Jesus worth following. All right? And as he was following him, he saw what everyone else did. He saw a man that was more than just a man. A man who walked on water, I think would be pretty impressive, right? So he saw Jesus walk on water. He saw a man who calmed a raging sea with a word. He saw a man who made the lame walk again. He saw a man who took a generous little boy and had and offered up his lunch and saw Jesus break it into a thousand different pieces to feed everyone a couple of times over. We don't know when Thomas decided to follow Jesus, but we do know that as he walked, he talked, he listened, and he saw him. He realized that Jesus was not only worth following, but that he was worth sticking to. Thomas was certain in his belief. And that conviction would be tested multiple times. One particular time we want to examine this morning. As we mentioned last week, Jesus was incredibly popular, right? And also incredibly controversial. The more he taught, the more those in power realized that he was dangerous to their position. And so they sought to have him killed, right? And those who followed him, they want to squelch the movement so they could stay in control. And so as Jesus was walking around talking, he often came close to where they lived and worked, which was the capital city of Jerusalem. And so he was there, but he was like, well, it's not quite time for me to uh, to die yet. So he moved and his disciples moved off into the wilderness away from the capital city. And as they did that, great crowds flocked to him. They came to hear him and see him perform these amazing miracles. It was one of the most fruitful times in Jesus's ministry. Things were going fantastic. In the mind of Thomas and the disciples, things were going so good, they didn't want it to end, right? People were being healed. Nobody was trying to kill them or give them a hard time. It would have been great, right? So Thomas wouldn't have minded if it stayed like that forever. But Jesus had other plans. It wasn't long while we were there and things were going fantastic and everybody was doing great. But the word came to Jesus that his friend Lazarus was sick and dying. And Lazarus' family begged Jesus to come and heal our brother. Right? He's sick. We know you can heal him. Come and do it. Now, this wouldn't have been a problem, except Lazarus lived in a town called Bethany, but it just happened to be like within a just sight. You could see Jerusalem, where all the people who wanted to kill Jesus and the disciples were. So it was really close to danger, right? 
So Thomas and the disciples that followed Jesus knew that if they went there and meant exposing himself and all of them to that danger, maybe even to death. And at first, when they got word, Jesus decided to stay put. He said, okay, I'm not, I'm not leaving. We're going to stay right here. And all the disciples went, whew, great, I'm not going to die today, right? That's good news. <laughs> That's good news. We're not leaving. Everything's going to stay good. It's nice and comfortable here. It's working out. We don't need to meet, leave. And so they were good. But after a few days later, Jesus said, you know what? We're going to go. Pack everything up. We're going to Bethany. We're going to see Lazarus. Now, naturally, the disciples and Thomas, they were scared. Things were going good. They didn't want to mess, in a, mess up a good thing. And by rushing in uh, to Bethany, they thought that this was, this was foolhardy. We're going we're gonna to get killed. And so they said this, John 11, verse 8. It'll be up above, you, above me on the screen and also uh, here online. But if you have a Bible or if you have an app, feel free to pull it up and read along with us. We're going to bounce around a lot of places in John today, okay? So John eleven eight, as Jesus is saying, yep, we're leaving, the disciples said this. They said, Rabbi. Any teacher, master, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again, right? In other words, hey, we just got out of that situation. Everything's going good here. Why do we want to rush back into a place where we could be killed, right? Now, what I appreciate here is the pronoun usage. What do they say? What do they say? That right now the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, right? And, and are you going there again? I appreciate that because when things were going great and they were away from danger, they were willing to follow Jesus wherever he went. Things were comfortable. Things were convenient. They were like, great, we'll go with you. We will go with you. Right? We'll do it. But as soon as he starts going back and, oh, I'm, I'm heading back into danger. I'm heading back into trouble. They said, oh, are, are, are you going back? <laughs> they were looking to stone you. And, and so I don't think we should be going. I love the honesty of the gospel writers here because I believe that every single one of us would probably have responded the same way. Faith is easy when things are going great. Certainty is affordable when life's comfortable. But let trouble come and belief and certainty gives way to doubt and skepticism. Trials, you see, sift us. It's like the wind blowing the head of a dandelion. So does trouble separate the convenient from the convicted. So the disciples are mulling this. They're deciding what's going to happen to us. What's gonna happen? We don't want to go into danger, Jesus. We want to stay here. But Jesus is determined. He's going to go whether they follow or not. So while the rest of the disciples are over there hemming and hawing, oh, I don't really want to go, but we should we? I don't know. They're kind of going back and forth. Thomas speaks up. We're going to have it up here for you. It's uh, verse 16 of chapter 11. It says, So Thomas, called the twin, which we just discussed, said to his fellow disciples, they're all got a little huddle going, right? They're, they're sitting here. All right, do we go? Do we not go? He says, all right. Let us also go, I appreciate this, that we may die with him. Every time someone speaks, you learn something about them. You ever notice that? Talk to somebody. I'll, I'll encourage you every week to talk to each other, but talk to somebody today. But just have a general discussion about anything, and every time somebody speaks, you're going to learn something about them if you're really paying attention. Even just their tone, you'll learn something about who they are and what they're going through. And this statement by Thomas gives us a glimpse into who he is. First, he's thoughtful, right? He's not rushing. All the other disciples are ready to speak, and they're jumping in. Oh, they're going to stone you, Jesus. Oh, we don't want to go, Jesus. And he's waiting. He's thinking. He's a processor. Any, any processors here? You don't rush to think. You just got to really got to think through it before you give a, any, any thought, any, any real word to it. You have to think through it. So he's thought through this. 
He doesn't rush to speak, but when he does, it's really profound, right? Second, he's determined. So even though the immediate future is painful, he's willing to push through it as long as Jesus is there. He's committed. He's convicted. He's like, all right, I'm going to move through this. Even though it's going to be painful, I'm going to stick with him. And third, he's probably a pessimist, or at the very least pragmatic, right? Because how does he say it? He's weighed the options here. He's determined to go despite this potential probable negative result, but he's not happy about it, is he? Essentially, he's saying, all right, guys, let's just suck it up and go die. Right? Let's just go do it. It's better to die and be with Christ than to be left behind anyway. So let's just suck it up and go. So he's thoughtful, he's determined, and he's a pessimist, or pragmatic at the very least. He's accepted his fate. What happens when you have people who are slow to speak is lots of times people will listen to them more than they'll listen to the person who's first to speak. And so when Thomas says, all right, let's suck it up and go, all the rest of the disciples said, okay, let's go. So they all decide to go at Thomas's word, right? So they agree, they agree. They follow Jesus to Bethany. And when they get there, they don't die, thankfully. Actually, quite the opposite. They get there, and Lazarus has already died. Jesus took too long. Of course, he did it on purpose. I'll, you can follow that story up later. But he gets there, and Lazarus is dead. And now, like, oh, what's going to happen? We've waited too long, and everybody's crying. And there's a funeral, and it's sad, and it's bad news. And, and Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. (laughs) He says, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to give you a glimpse of heaven on earth right now. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and into life again. Thomas's devotion pays off. He gets to witness Jesus's biggest miracle ever, right? And now he's more certain than ever that Jesus is the one they've all been waiting for. He's like, whoa, okay, I've seen him walk on water, seen him feed thousands, but now this guy's legit. He's the real deal. He's really who he says he is. And he's certain Thomas is ready to do anything for Jesus. So they continue following him. They evade death at that moment, but it wouldn't be long before it came calling again. See, Jesus would know that, hey, he's got to die at some point. That's his whole purpose, ultimately. So he knows he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, and so he does. Last week of his life, he enters into the city knowing he's going to die. His disciples go with him because they know that at this point they're committed, right? They're committed. And so he continues and starts to tell them, especially that last night before his death, that he's going to leave. And where he's going, they're not going to be able to follow. But he'll come back for them. But they can't go with him just now. He's trying to tell them that he's going to die. He's trying to tell them that he's going to rise again in three days. But they just didn't understand, right? They couldn't grasp it. He tells them like this. It's John 14, 1 through 4. Very famous section of the Gospel of John. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, I'll take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Verse 4 says, and you know the way to where I'm going. So he's trying to explain to them this, this big, big, incredibly hard concept that we even have hard time wrapping our minds around with all this perspective that we have that he is going to die but he's going to come back but they didn't get it they didn't get it last week we read that peter spoke first right we, we listened to peter boldly speak out that no jesus you're you're going to die okay maybe but i'm going to die with you i'm committed to sticking with you and we know that peter failed miserably right so how did thomas do what did thomas do mr determined thoughtful pragmatic thomas how was he going to respond He was determined not to be separated from Jesus. So what did he do? First, he sat and listened. He didn't rush to speak. He was one of the last ones to speak. 
He thought about Jesus' words. He thought about the three years they had spent together. He thought about all the times they had laughed together, argued together, cried together. He thought about this whole relationship that he had founded his life on for the past three years. He had known that Jesus had just washed his feet, that he had seen him empower him to do things beyond Thomas's ability. And now he's thinking, it's over? It, doesn't make, it didn't make sense to Thomas. What, what do you mean, Jesus? And especially that last statement that Jesus made, he was like, I don't, I don't get it. What do you mean we know the way you're going to go? I don't, I don't know. What do you mean? Matter of fact, he was so uncertain, so, so thoughtful. He was like, well, I got to find out. So he asked, John 14, 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I love it. I love Thomas's question. He didn't understand. None of them did. Thomas thought on it. And for the first time in a long time, he was unsure. He was uncertain. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? He's seeking this certainty. He's seeking this direction. And what's commendable is he's not afraid to ask for it, right? How many of us in our lives have we been in a moment of thinking and questioning in our lives, whether it be about faith or any other relationship, and we're, not afraid, we're too afraid, rather, to ask the question that we're thinking? How can we know the way? What does this mean? I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite certain. Thomas is courageous enough to ask the question. See, we need to be deep thinkers and not just willing sheep. We don't need to be jaded skeptics who ask questions just for the sake of asking questions, but we do need to be genuine seekers looking for the way forward, not afraid to ask the hard questions, but also willing to receive the answer. Jesus answered him with one of the, if not the most, controversial statements in all of human history. This statement would shape everything. This really nailed it down. Jesus 14, or John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, after, after Thomas says, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's he saying? He said, I am God in flesh, the only way to true life now and eternal life later there is no other way. Anything else is half-truth and falsehoods, appealing distractions, offering a promise that they can't keep. I am, he said, the end of your journey, the desire of your heart. Thomas didn't understand. None of them did. How could he be the way? They just, they just didn't, they couldn't wrap their minds around that. Thomas was certain before this moment. Now he was not certain. Now he was unsure. Now he's asking questions. He couldn't understand that the only way forward was for Jesus to go alone. He didn't understand the, the, the cosmic implications that only Jesus had the power to break this wall of separation between God and man. Only he had the power to truly defeat death, hell, and the grave. Only Christ could do it. Thomas didn't understand. Thomas was willing to die with Jesus because he knew that death meant the end. So if, if death was the end, he wanted to go out with Christ. But he wasn't willing. He didn't want to be separated from him. He didn't know that Jesus was going to remove that separation. He couldn't have understood it. But the thought of living on without Jesus broke his heart. So as he's sitting there contemplating and he's unsure, he's like, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, you mean you're going to leave us after we spent these three years with you and now you're going to die? And I don't know what you mean you're going to come back. I don't know what you mean you are the way. I, I hear the words, but I don't perceive them. I don't understand them. And now I'm worried. Now I'm concerned because if you're gone, what does it mean for me? 
If you're not here, what does that mean for me? So he's questioning, he's doubting. Jesus' words come to pass the next day, and so does Thomas's worst fear. Jesus died, and Thomas didn't. And it's easy in that moment when we see Christ on the cross and in the tomb the next day to sense the grief that Thomas went through, seeing someone he loved die, to go where he couldn't follow. If you've ever experienced losing someone you loved, you understand, don't you? Some days you think it might have been better for you to die with them. Somehow less cruel to have to carry on alone. Thomas is despondent, as we can imagine. He was once so sure, he was once so certain in his steps, and now everything is just this haze. It was too good to be true, he thinks. And now he looks back in the past three years as a waste, a tease, a mirage, right? What are the good times worth if they only end in pain? You ever been there? Maybe not with Jesus, but maybe with another relationship in your life. You ever looked at someone or something in your life going on and you lose it or it's gone, and then you're looking like, I don't understand why I had to go through all that, and it, it doesn't even make sense. All I have is this big gaping hole where that person or that thing used to be, and I don't understand why I'm still here and that's not. And everything is kind of uncertain, shaky, right? Thomas's faith becomes scarred, it becomes jaded. He goes from devoted to a doubter. How many times maybe have you been there in your faith, questioning, doubting, jaded by life, thinking, have I believed the wrong thing? Is God really there? I don't know for sure. I thought I did, but today I don't. While the rest of the disciples gather together and grieve after Jesus' death, Thomas goes off by himself. Thomas is a processor. And if you're a processor, if you're pragmatic, if you're one of those people you typically don't like to be with a bunch of other people when life's going crazy. And so he steps out and he goes off by himself. And he's thinking by himself. But the other disciples, they come and they gather together to grieve about Jesus' death. And as they're doing that, something crazy happens. Something crazy happens. They're together, they're gathering in the upper room where Jesus just the, a couple of days before had told them he was going to die. And all of a sudden, uh, Mary rushes into the room and tells him something incredible. She says, Jesus isn't in the tomb. I went this morning and he's not there. He's gone. And not only that, but I've actually seen him. Now, imagine this for a second, and we'll probably dive into this a few different times before we get to Easter. Imagine being on the other end of that conversation. You're immediately going, oh, sure, Mary. Wow, that's great news. No, you're not, right? You're thinking, whoa, Mary, <laughs> I know we're all sad. We're all grieving. I know that, that things are a little hectic right now. We don't know what's going to go on, but you did not see Jesus. He's dead. We saw it happen. We saw him lay in the tomb. He's gone. Come and sit down, have some coffee, because this is just as crazy, right? You're not, you didn't see Jesus. But she is adamant, so adamant that Peter and John, who we talked about last week, go back to the tomb with them, and they find nothing, right? So now we got three witnesses saying, oh, there, Jesus is not there. And now Peter and John don't see Jesus, so they go back to the rest of the disciples, they gather back in the room, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. Okay, Mary might have been crazy, but Peter and John both went, they both didn't see anything, and if dead man don't get up and walk off, so there's only a few explanations. And as they're sitting there talking through the possibilities, all of a sudden, Jesus pops in the room. 
Doors are locked. They're scared. They're terrified. Jesus is a locked door. Didn't stop Jesus. He comes in the room. He steps in, and they think they see a ghost. Obviously, because people don't walk through locked doors, right? And so they're freaking out, saying, "Whoa, what's going on? Is the spirit?" And Jesus, is like, calm down. <laughs> it's me. It's me. He says, "I'll prove it to you. Come, come here. Touch. Feel me." He says, "Give me something to eat. Let's have breakfast. Let's talk, right?" I'll eat some fish. Ghosts don't eat fish, right? I don't think that'd be a weird ghost. They can't eat, right? But I do, because I'm not a ghost, right? And so he explains to them. He sits down, they eat, and he explains to them his death and his resurrection. For the ten that are left, where's Thomas? He's gone. Thomas checked out. He was gone last week, right? After after Jesus' death, he's off by himself sulking. And so Thomas misses out. He's so wrapped up in his grief, he misses out on a visitation by Christ. Jesus leaves. And the disciples, they're, they're, they're wrapped up in it. Like, holy smokes, this is incredible. This changes everything. Life's going to be completely different from now on. I'm trying to process what this even means for us. And they're like, oh, wait, where's Thomas? Wait a minute, where'd he go? We've got to go track him down. So they finally track him down, and they try to convince him, but he's not having any of it. Any of it. Thomas wasn't there. He didn't see Jesus. He's not believing. He says, you can't fool me. I don't believe anything anymore that I can't see for myself. If I can't see it, touch it, feel it, breathe it, it didn't exist. John 20, 25b, it'll be up on the screen. This is exactly what he says. But he said to them, while they're trying to convince them that Jesus is alive, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into it, unless I place my hand into his side where the spear pierced, I will never believe. Never. Anybody been there? <laughs> it's too good to be true. I've read the fine print. People don't come back from the dead. God isn't real. He's a figment. I need to see it to believe it. He seemed past the point of no return. All he could see in that moment, all he could see in his grief wasn't reality. All he could see was the bad. There was no going back to a certain devoted Thomas. Humpty Dumpty had fell off the wall and broken. There was no putting Thomas back together again, right? He was fractured. His life was jaded, scarred forever. No going back to certain Thomas. But what I appreciate is his friends didn't leave him. They didn't reject him. They didn't say, oh, Thomas, you forget it, Tom. All you do is walk around moping. You're like Eeyore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You just go sit on your, your corner. You go grieve on the sidewalk. We're going to go back to the upper room. We're going to have more breakfast and lunch. We're going to celebrate Jesus together, and you go do what you need to do. You be by yourself. They didn't. They continued to talk. They continued to love. They loved him too much to let him sit, stew, and suffer alone. They took a week, a week with Thomas, bringing him back, Coming back to the group. Come on, Thomas, come hang out with us. I know you're still sad. I know you don't believe us. Come hang out with us. Come sit. Come talk. Drawing him back in. Arthur Dan Darling once said, he said, those hurting and doubting need our presence more than our propositioning. Thomas's friends wouldn't let him go. And so the next week, he's with them in the room, and then Jesus shows up again. They won't let him go. They bring him in. They sit in the room. Thomas 20, uh, John 20, 26 says this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them because they're great friends, and they're really convincing. They're bringing him in. He might not believe what they said, but 
He's bringing them in. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he does something. It's something crazy. He didn't say, just peace be with you. Now let's sit and have dinner or listen, whatever time of day it was. He sees Thomas. Immediately, he walks into the room and everybody else says, peace be with you. Great. Now, Thomas, you weren't here last time. 2027, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Just like Peter, Jesus doesn't react with rejection with Thomas. He doesn't say, come on, you thick head, right? Really? You had a dozen of your, over a dozen of your closest friends tell you they had seen me, tell you they had seen the empty tomb. You've had a whole week to go and see the empty tomb for yourself, and you still don't believe. What? You think they're all lying? You think 12 people had a delusion? That doesn't make any sense. Why would they all be lying to you, right? What's going on, Thomas? Why are you so dumb? Why are you so pessimistic? Why can't you perk up? Maybe I did come back from the rave. You couldn't believe that for just half a second? No. But he doesn't do that. I probably would do that. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. No. He meets Thomas where Thomas is at. He's gentle. He understands Thomas's weakness. And he invites them back to be certain again. The answer we see to our fears and our doubts isn't a set of principles that we live by. It isn't good energy but said a person who knows and understands us inside and out. And so when Thomas meets the resurrected Christ, when he sees and believes, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. You see, the realization washed over him, and he knew that without a shadow of a doubt that this wasn't just any mere man anymore, that this was the Lord of all creation that this was the God that had made the universe. He recognized Jesus' power and authority. But what I also greatly appreciate, what he says here is that he recognized Jesus' power and authority over him. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was transformed by Jesus. That's what it took for him. His doubts were erased. His faith restored. This was the truth he was willing to die for. He had seen it. He believed it. This was it. It was all over for him. He was ready to do whatever it took, no matter what, for this risen Jesus. This is the truth as a church that moves us to worship. If Jesus did rise again, and if, if he still bears the scars of his death today, then we have no choice but to confess him as our Lord and our God. You see, all of us, I believe, are on a journey of discovery of that central fact. And what's encouraging is that Jesus isn't afraid of our doubt and our skepticism on that journey. Bring your doubts 
Bring your questions, bring your fears, bring your failures, because faith in Christ isn't blind, but tested. It's examined, it's reasoned, it's grounded in reality, not metaphysical fantasy. So I want to encourage you to be smart, to be courageous like Thomas, to ask these questions that we all have. Is he there? Does it mean? Is it real? Not understanding those things, to be humble enough to receive the answer. Because it's in that process that will move you from confused skeptic to convinced believer. So as we sit here this morning, and maybe you're one of those who are skeptical. Maybe you're a seeker this morning. Maybe you're genuinely asking these tough questions that we all have to ask at some point, that I pray that we do all ask at some point. And you're sitting there and you're struggling with that reasoning. You're like, I don't know. I can't believe something I can't see, feel, hear, and touch. But you know, somehow, you can't even explain it, but you know that there is a God. You know that this Jesus sounds like one worth following, that he's different than the rest, that, that he is a story that seems fake, but that comes down and touches your very life, just like he transformed and touched all the lives of the disciples after his resurrection. And you're there today, and you're thinking, I, I, don't, I don't quite know if I'm there yet, but maybe, maybe I am. And if that's the truth, then how do, I, how do I follow the way? How do I understand that truth? How do I live that out now? If that's you, then we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that call. That's what it is. That's Jesus calling you. He's already sitting there. Okay, whoever, whatever your name is, wherever you're at this morning, you're seeking me. Not an idea, not a thought, not energy, not a principle, but a person who knows and loves you. And you're doubtful, you question, and that's okay. Bring it on. I'm willing to answer those, to walk on that journey with you through certainty and doubt. So if that's you, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that in just one minute. For believers, though, I want us to wrestle with some things ourselves. Where are your areas of disappointment and doubts today, right? Think about that. We all have them. What's your doubts and disappointments, right? What doubts do you need to bring to Jesus today that perhaps you maybe you've never vocalized before? There may be something in your life you're thinking through. I've never been told I could question this. I've always been told, hush, just listen. I've never been told that, hey, I can ask questions of Jesus and not be called a fool or told to hush, right? Maybe that's you. So what doubts are in your mind? What questions do you have in your mind that you need to vocalize? Maybe not necessarily to me. You don't have to do it to me. But even just to, to, to Jesus, maybe just think out loud. Like, well, Jesus, I don't quite know. I don't quite get this part. Or maybe you're not struggling. Maybe you're good. Maybe you're certain. Maybe you're devoted like Thomas. You don't have any disappointments and doubts. But maybe you need to do some self-examinations in some other areas. And what I like us to think through as a church is how do we respond when people ask questions and articulate doubts that make us uncomfortable? Right? What do we do? Do we just shut them down? Do we do like that parent that I've been most of my life that says just hush and do what you're told? Don't ask questions. I don't need, I don't need your questions. I need your obedience. Just do what I tell you to do. Are we like that? Are we just responding to that? Or how do we become a community where it's safe to have the courage to question and yet unashamedly point people to the truth of Jesus? How do we as scarred people authentically point people to our scarred, risen Savior?
That's what we need to think through and think on as a church. Because that's what life of faith is. A journey of doubts, of certainty, of devotion, of unbelief, of disbelief, of all these things. And it's okay as we go on that journey together. So as we get ready to wrap up this morning, if you're here and I encourage all heads to be bowed, all eyes shut, just so nobody's looking around. If you're here, I do this because I want to put anybody on the spot or make you feel weird. And you want to respond to Jesus. Maybe you've been seeking, maybe you've been doubting, but today you're getting a little more certain. (laughs) Getting a little closer. And you want to, to step in to that relationship with Jesus. To do that, we simply pray. It's just simply talk to God. He's there. You're not, you're not praying to me or to anything else, all the crazy. You're, you're praying to a God that is right there in the moment with you. He's here. He's with you online. And you simply talk to him. It's not, not anything crazy. It's just talking like you're talking to anyone else in your life. You simply say, hey, hey Jesus, I, I, I'm a little bit like Thomas today. I have some doubts and some questions I'm not quite certain what all the answers are yet. But I genuinely want to find them in you. I'm ready to ask them of you, and I'm, I'm ready to hear what you have to say to my life. I'm ready for your authority to say, hey, I don't, I, you be in charge. You show me what to do. Tell me how it all works, how it pieces together. What's my next steps? To give me some certainty. When I feel like I'm falling apart. Lord, I need you today and every day. Help me to follow you as Thomas did. Help me to believe in you as he did when he saw you again. Forgive me for all the things I messed up as I have. Lord, and just help me to follow you each day. And that's all it is. If you've prayed that prayer or something like it, that's all it takes. It's all it takes. It's not magic words. It's it's a relationship with Christ. And so if that's you and you're here this morning and maybe you've made that prayer or said that prayer for the first time or one like it and you responded to that call for the first time, if you're in person with all heads are bowed and all eyes shut, I just want you to slip your hand up so I can follow up with you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to meet with you after and say, hey, let me tell you what's next. If you're online, I just want you to like or love a comment that we're going to post because I want you to know that we're going to follow up with you too, all right? You're just as important. So don't think you're just left out because you're sitting wherever you're sitting. You are there. Jesus is with you and so are we. We're going to walk through that journey with you. So we'll contact you today as well. Amen. Amen. For believers, all of us sitting here and listening online as we wrap up this morning, let's pray to this final prayer together. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you, Father, that you are a God who comes to us first. <laughs> Lord, that, that, that you meet us in the room like with Thomas. God, that we're living our lives and sometimes we don't have all the answers and sometimes we're questioning what, the answers we thought we already had. And God, that you don't run away from us when we have problems with you. <laughs> but you enter into our lives, you get closer, you say, hey, come, come to touch, feel, ask these questions, talk through these things, listen in as I talk back to you as we share this journey of life together. God, I pray that we follow you with all that we have, God, that whether we're certain in our faith or uncertain, that, God, that we're willing uh, to follow you through thick and thin, through the highs and lows, to be committed to you as our Lord and our God, because uh, the, the God that rose from the grave, that defeated death, hell, and the grave for me is the only God worth following, the only true God there ever really is anyway. So, God, I pray that we as a body of believers, this church, God, those online, that we give everything over to you and say, let's go. 
Let's go, Jesus, and, and go and take that to the person who's questioning and doubting today, to be those friends, to bring them back in and say, come on with your doubts and questions. Come talk to us. Come bring them here, and let's talk to them together. Let me show you the risen Savior in my life. Thank you, Jesus, that you do that for us and help us to do a better job of that with others, to love them as you love us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. We're wrapping it up online, so thank you for hanging out with us today, for sticking with us through it all. Again, make sure you like and love the comments. If you're new here or if you responded to Christ and want to follow up with you today, make sure you check us out Thursdays at 6.30 for prayer meetings, Sundays at 10, and there's a bunch of posts during the week you can catch up on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all over the place, all right? So make sure you're following us on all those places so you don't miss anything from Faith Church. We'll see you guys next time.